Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. He's not giving them policies that are going to help them out of where they are. What he's giving them is something that is more emotionally important. He's giving them their identity back. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today on our show, I'm talking to Dan Partland and Rob Reiner. Dan is a documentary filmmaker and the director of a new film called God in Country. Rob Reiner was a producer on the film, but you probably know him as an actor or as a director from New Girl or On the Family or When Harry Met Sally or Stand By Me or any one of dozens of other credits. God in Country is a documentary about Christian nationalism in the era of Donald Trump. And it made a big splash when the trailer dropped a few months ago because, well, Rob's a big name. He's been active in politics for a long time. But also because a number of evangelicals were involved. People like Calvin University professor Kristen Dumay or Phil Vischer and Sky Jatani of The Holy Post, David French from The New York Times, and Russell Moore, Christianity Today's own editor-in-chief. Some conservatives cried foul. Why would evangelicals participate in such a project? Why would they partner with unbelievers to criticize the church? My own reaction was mostly curiosity. These people made a movie about us. And if not directly about us, my own church wasn't really represented in the film, they made a movie about our brothers and sisters, our fellow evangelicals. What would they see when they looked at the church? What did they learn about Christians, about Jesus? I figured I wouldn't agree with everything they had to say, and and that was true. But I also was intrigued by the idea that the film was an attempt to hold up a mirror to us and what we could learn in the process. Shortly after the trailer came out, I was invited to see it and to sit down with Dan Partland and Rob Reiner to talk about it. So a few weeks ago, I traveled to D.C. to do just that. Dan Partland, Rob Reiner, welcome to The Bulletin. Super happy to have you with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Let me start with you, Dan. Tell me, what made you want to make this film? I've been concerned about the direction of American democracy for a while now, and just in examining what some of the roots and sources of some of our division in this highly polarized age came upon the issue of Christian nationalism. And to be honest, I was pretty wary of getting into it because it is such a sensitive thing when you're talking about something adjacent to faith. But the more I dug into it, the more I saw that it isn't faith. It's hardly even adjacent to faith, but it is a political ideology. But if Christian nationalists can convince you that this is really a faith, then they can shut down the conversation as I saw that dynamic playing out, I just thought it was more important that we actually mm-hmm. pull this together and necessary to yeah. talk about it. Do you have a personal faith connection? I mean, do you come to this as a person of faith? I'm from an interfaith background, uh, actually multiple generations. It's a great American story. You know, mm-hmm. among my first cousins, we're Catholics and atheists, Presbyterians, Jews, and Greek Orthodox. 
And I grew Good up, combination. Yeah, there you go. We all went to each other's services, and when we were at each other's services, we participated in the tradition of that family. And it worked seamlessly. It's what America is all about. And for you then, Rob, what brings you to a project like this? I've been aware of the rise in power of this Christian nationalist movement. I didn't call it that back in the 80s when Norman Lear started the People for the American Way. Mm -hmm. In the 70s, even when I was doing All in the Family, when Roe v. Wade passed, all of a sudden you saw a movement that was afoot. I didn't really think so much of it in terms of how powerful it could be or how effective, and I've seen it grow mm -hmm. over the years. And as Dan points out, it really is completely divorced from what I understand Christianity to be and the teachings of Jesus. It seems completely divorced from it. Yeah. It seems like a political movement that uses an issue, whatever the issue is, to get what you want and you're willing to do anything for it. You'll do it at the point of a gun. And we've seen that thing grow over the years. And then when we saw what happened on January 6th, I thought, you can violently try to overthrow a government. One of the elephants in the room for this conversation, and this is a critique I know you all have already heard, is there are a lot of Christians who are looking at what's happening with the Republican Party, looking at this Christian nationalist movement, and saying, yeah, we have our issues. Forgive the term, but like, why should we listen to a couple of Hollywood liberals? That's a perfect criticism. Yeah. You shouldn't listen to <laughs> a couple of Hollywood liberals, but what yeah. you should do is when you watch the film, listen to the people who you respect and trust and have been devout Christians their whole lives, and some of them very conservative. Yeah. Listen to what they have to say don't listen to me. You know, they'll say to me, why should I care about what you think about Christianity? You're Jewish. And what I say, and this is the honest to God truth, is I was raised in a secular household. We were not religious. There was no religion in my house. But at a time in my life, when I went through the worst, most difficult period of my life, and I was really in trouble and really searching for what do I believe? I mean, what can I hold on to? And I did a lot of reading during that period. I read about Buddhism. I read about Islam. I read about Christianity. I read, even read up on Judaism. I read on all of these religions. And this was a lot of soul searching, that dark period of, of the soul. Yeah. And I came away with looking at what Jesus taught, which was love thy neighbor and do unto others. And that resonated with me more than anything that I read. And if you look at other religions, it's essentially the same. All religions basically talk about loving your fellow man, peace, wanting to help your fellow man. All of those things resonated with me. And so that's where I come to on this. And then when I see people ready to kill somebody over their belief, I said, that's not what Jesus taught. Mm -hmm. He didn't teach that. He taught about loving your enemy, loving everyone, and, all, and we're all interconnected. Sure. But you don't force somebody else to think your way. That's not the way that I understand that Jesus taught. And I think what's clear in the film is this idea that, that there's this broad value of a pluralistic society, and that's what's threatened 
so much by Christian nationalism. Yeah. How did you approach that question? I entered into this content because I was concerned about what I saw going on in American democracy. What you really want is to find the best voices, mm -hmm. the best, most thoughtful perspectives. And what I was finding is some of the strongest, best voices were from Christians. And that gave a whole new dimension to the film because what I first saw as just democracy in crisis became very clear that also there's a crisis in the American church. So then who's this movie for? Who are you trying to convince with the film? This is for everybody. Unfortunately, I do think that we're forced into our own silos of information. And I think it's very tough to reach certain people who are just steeped in that and will not listen to any other kind of reason. But I do think that if you really listen to what the people in the film say, you have to give it a second thought. You have to think, what am I doing here? I'm willing to kill somebody over a, a religious ideology? I mean, it just doesn't work. As a filmmaker, you always want the widest possible audience. I'd love everybody to see it. I think it's for everybody. We took great pains to make sure it was accessible to people, to, could meet the audience wherever they came at it from. But of course, the group that I think it most pertains to are really the group of Christians, of good, decent, patriotic American Christians who are having a lot of question about what they see going on in this fusing, really, of faith and a political agenda. It's really, I think and I hope, gives them a little more perspective because, honestly, the numbers that the studies are showing about how many Americans are swept up in this Christian nationalist movement are staggering. But I don't think that most of them are wittingly participating in that. Mm -hmm. I think they really have been swept up. They've been swept up by the fact that there's so much reinforcement in the media silos that Rob is talking about. They're hearing these messages. They're hearing messages of political violence being sown in church. They're hearing these messages being reinforced by pastors. It's gotten out of control, and I think it swept up a lot of people in it. They're, they're being misguided, you know, they're being misled. And I think they're looking at it really carefully right now and looking to see if this really is consistent with their value system. And I think it's become very tough for pastors. If you're trying to teach what Jesus talked about and all that, and you're not being part of this my way of the highway movement, then you get marginalized and diminished. There's really interesting data. So Barna has done research called the State of the Pastors, the survey, and they've shown really since COVID just a staggering number of pastors who will essentially say, I would quit if I could right now because they're burned out on these issues. But that's what they, so upsetting to hear that. Well, and what they that's really upsetting. is, is if, if these issues come up and they say, hey, let's talk about politics as an idol, politics as idolatry, mm -hmm. and confront these things, it's not that the whole church is going to revolt, but it's that enough people are going to revolt to make your life miserable and make you want to quit because the attachment to these things is so deep and yeah, so profound. Wow, wow. We have a whole thing in the film about, you talk about pluralism and how wonderful this country is because we are pluralist. We have so many different religions and ethnicities and backgrounds of different countries and all that. And you look at all that and you say, wow, how great. The whole idea of all mankind can come together in one place and live with each other, that only works if you have a separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work if you have a religion that is the country. And that's what Christian nationalism, they want to push 
one religion on everybody. And if you look at the people who came to America, the Huguenots and the people who came to America who were fleeing religious persecution and formed a country that said, you can believe whatever you want to believe, you're still welcome here in this country. Well, you take church and state away from that, then you've destroyed that idea. And if you talk to people who are in the Christian nationalist movement, they'll tell you that there is no separation of church and state in the Constitution, which is just not true. It's mentioned three times, you know, that the state will make no religion, that there will be no religious test and all of those things. Southern Baptists are, it's a massive denomination. There's a lot of people who are attracted to the Christian nationalist movement. There's a lot who aren't as well. But what always fascinates me is when I hear Southern Baptists getting drawn into the Christian nationalism thing is that Baptist theology very explicitly says we want separation from church and state because we want authentic conversions. We want to save people's souls. And if people are being forced to identify as Christians, we have no reason to authenticate like we can effectively say that we believe them. (laughs) You You don't want somebody to believe how you believe at the point of a gun. And it needn't be at the point of a gun. It can be the result of a law. The one value that I think everyone, including the Christian nationalists, would all agree is that we believe in freedom in America. We believe in liberty. The liberty that we're talking about all the time really is, it's not just the free from a tyrannical kingdom across the ocean. Most of the liberty that is unique to the American experiment is religious liberty. That's really what it was from the beginning. And so freedom and pluralism are partners. You really can't have one without the other. You really can't have freedom if you don't have a pluralistic society. The government shouldn't have a role in endorsing and putting the force of law behind one system of beliefs than another. The way that that was walled off in America was really so that religion would be safe, so that religion could flourish, and it has. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. 
And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I had a funny experience watching the film. I've grown up in the church my whole life, very devout family and and all of this. And there were a lot of moments in this where what was on display is very far from my experience. I'm not connected to these sort of prophetic movements. I'm not connected to the Christian nationalist movement. But when you talk about the drift, there's a lot in it that is really familiar. And there's a lot in it in terms of the way that it sort of calls back history, the way that it calls Mm -hmm. back the church that I grew up in in the 80s and 90s. And that all made a lot of sense to me. I was laughing, actually, because I remembered there's a documentary called It Might Get Loud. It's Jimmy Page and and Jack White and The Edge. They're sitting around, and they make a Spinal Tap (laughs) reference. Jimmy Page tells a story. He says, you know, when we went to see Spinal Tap, we're in the theater, and everybody's laughing. And we looked at each other, and we all wept because we were like, this is us. This is what we look like. You want to hear a great story? Just to piggyback on that, when I was casting this, The Princess Bride, the movie, Sting from the police came in to audition as to possibly play my part. He says to me, we watch it on the tour bus. We watch Spinal Tap. He says, I've seen that movie 50 times. Yeah. He says, every time I look at it, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, having been yeah. in bands that went nowhere, <laughs> I, I can say, like, the experience of getting lost on the way to the stage yeah. or, like, the revolving... Yes, very true to life. But there's an element of that feeling watching this film, of going, that's not me, that's not my church, but it's my crazy uncle. It's, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, not yeah, literally yeah. my crazy uncle, but it's yeah, my crazy yeah. uncle. Yeah. There's this feeling of, like, these are my people. My heart breaks for them yeah. to the extent that they're drawn into this stuff. Yeah. So I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about what's the magnet? What's the attraction? It's very complex and very different reasons for why somebody gets drawn into that. Mm-hmm. There could be unhappiness with the government. There could be unhappiness with your life at a certain point. I look at somebody like Donald Trump, he becomes a galvanizing force behind all this because he's a strong man. And there's something about when you're feeling weak in your life, and we all have felt that, you want somebody to come in and be strong and fix it. I alone can fix it. And you say, well, however, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling disenfranchised, I'm feeling disconnected, whatever. And somebody comes along and says, I can fix this. Mm -hmm. You'll just say, okay, fix it. Mm -hmm. Do something for me right now. And I think that you'll find a lot of people are drawn into it because they think, okay, it's going to make everything make sense and it's going to all work for me. Why why did it work with Trump? The remarkable thing about Donald Trump is that we're talking about Christian nationalism. There's nothing about Trump that embodies the Christian part of the Christian nationalism. Not at all. Not not Christianity, even. And yet he's the the galvanizing figure in all of this. I I love that you included the clip from Liberty where he doesn't even have the biblical competence to know that it's called 2 Corinthians and not 2 Corinthians. And hold the Bible upside down. (laughs) That's my favorite, when he holds the Bible upside down. Look, I think there's a lot of answers to that. Rob gave a bunch of good ones. I think, yes, we're living in an age of tremendous anxiety and a lot of moral ambiguities. And people are really wrestling with it and looking for, you know, leaders who 
affirm what they're feeling and tell them that there's a simple fix. But specifically, we can't talk about the Trump phenomenon without talking about the race overlap because there's no question that he was always blowing a dog whistle for a sort of white nationalist movement. And these are not the same movement, but there's a lot of overlap between what is white nationalism, what is Christian nationalism. That's why properly a lot of scholars are just calling it white Christian nationalism. It's not really a big phenomenon in the black yeah. church. I think that all those anxieties are real, and I think that leaders, political leaders, and also faith leaders need to be speaking to those. People need guidance on that. I think the increasing gaps of income inequality are making people really feel like institutions are failing them. Right. So it's happening across the board in a way that I think the historians are rightly comparing to interwar Europe. The tenor of our political debate is going the way that Europe was going in the lead up to World War II. And that's, that's really what we need to be concerned with. When the right stew is present, humans can be led in this direction. Yeah. Whole societies can be led in this direction. And that's why those of us who have not been subsumed in the sort of angry, vitriolic spirit of this grievance need to be some kind of a break against the impending wave. You touched on the fact that there's overlap between white Christian nationalism. There is overlap, but I would say the predominant face of Christian nationalism are white people. No and there's no question about it. And that's the reason I believe they get drawn to Trump, because he does talk about getting rid of immigrants. Let's get rid of anybody that's not us. A Muslim ban. Build a wall. It's all about going back to what people think this was supposed to be a white Christian nation. Mm -hmm. And what we did to black people was horrific, but it was all in service of this white Christian nation. But the beauty of the Founding Fathers is they laid out a constitution that allowed other people to come in. And we're all immigrants. We're all from different countries and around the world. To me, there's a big, fervent push to have a white Christian nation or at least their version of what Christian is, but it's mostly white. Yeah. And, and let me give you just one more thought piggybacking on, on Rob's great point, is that if you look at the history of these ethno-nationalist movements, they're like this, right? The leader of an ethno-nationalist movement, he doesn't give the followers anything, right? He's not, this, it, it's not a programmatic thing. He's not giving them policies that are gonna help them out of where they are. What he's giving them is something that is more emotionally important. He's giving them their identity back. He's saying you, by virtue of your race and where you were born and your faith, are at the top of the heap. And that is so important to people, especially if they're just, not, if they're just feeling like they're struggling so much. So in these times of struggle, the ethno-nationalist, it's important that they're not giving them anything. What they're giving them is pride. Mm -hmm. And so I think that as people are trying to figure out how to wrestle this movement, they have to figure out how can we do both? Yeah. How can we restore people's pride, but without raising one population over another? They're also giving them a sense that there's a story. Political ideology is always a story of some sort. There's utopia, here's the obstacle, 
And if we resolve this yeah. and we tell this story over and over again, people find a sense of purpose. There's some really interesting parallels inside the evangelical world if you look at the church growth movement. The church growth movement is a very ideological kind of movement. There's usually like, here's this one idea, here's this one concept that if we just get this thing right, the church is going to grow, we're going to reach our city, we're going to change the world, we're going to do the rest. That's very adjacent to yeah. the way political ideologies say Listen, utopia is just around the corner. We just happen to have this one problem that's in our way. It's these yeah. Jews, right? Yeah, these Jews. That's what Hitler said. <laughs> right. If we just get rid of right. those Jews, we'll have right. a or, master race. And, and, well, and everybody who, like yeah. you say, they feel identified. They feel yeah. identified. Oh, yeah. I'm the master race. I'm the best. I think there's a sense in which there are aspects of evangelical culture. There are things that have emerged that have simmered and, in a sense, created an unhealthy context where this could mm. blow up because it feels familiar. At the same time, again, I, I try to think of this in this compassionate frame as well, because you know one of the things you talk about in the film is the role that fear plays behind this. People are afraid of, of losing something. They have a sense that they're persecuted. And I think that's a complicated issue, because I think that there are narratives, again, it depends on where you live in the country. The average evangelical Christian living in Dallas, Texas, is not persecuted, right? But there's the baker in Colorado who has said, look, I have a conscientious objection to this I thing. Don't I don't want to do it, and I'm going to get yeah. sued. You had the nuns who objected to the, the birth control mandate that was part of the, the Obamacare laws. Nuns got sued by the federal government because they didn't want birth control. And so Christians look at that. They feel very uncomfortable with that. The sensibility from a lot of them is those concerns get dismissed by the media. Those concerns get dismissed by leftist politicians. People say, well, you're not really persecuted. You're the powerful ones. You're not oppressed. You're the oppressor, et cetera. And they say, that doesn't make any sense. And a guy like Trump comes along and tells them exactly what they want to hear. They sign up for that. Right. How do you think about that tension? Because from where I sit, I look at it and go, look, a, a pluralistic society to me says, look, if the nuns don't want birth control, they'll make them buy birth control, right? Yeah, no. And you're right about this because here's the thing. You say the media is, we've heard that liberal media bias and all that stuff, but you have Fox News, you have OAN, you have Newsmax, you have all kinds of venues for putting out information. And if it really goes against your belief not to sell a cake or do a wedding for a gay couple, or you're a nun who doesn't believe that you should have birth control, that's okay you can lobby for that. You can use whatever means you have, whether it's through the media, whether it's through uh, voting for somebody who believes that. You can do that. You just can't resort to violence to get that. You know what I mean? You have to find a way to, to get those ideas across. And if the majority believe, agrees with you, you'll get those ideas across. Navigating the edges of what, what is appropriately religious freedom and what is public policy about where people need protections and where the society needs protections, that's all open for debate, as Rob said. That's important that we debate that. That can go any different way. I think that the question of whether that's been a big feature or whether that's been hyped, maybe people would debate about. To me, it seems like really very few cases that we're actually talking about. They're interesting cases. They're complicated cases in some kinds of ways. I suspect that the bigger feeling 
of Christians being persecuted is really that they're losing power, and in some senses they are. They're losing cultural power. And that pressure is coming from the secularization of society. It's not coming from the United States government trying to contain them or anybody trying to deny them their, their religious liberty. The truth is a lot of the things that fall under that heading that may be a big dust up in your local municipality about whether there's going to be a manger on at the holiday time. I'm like, oh, okay, there's a manger. We got it. We always had a manger. How could anybody say, okay, then let's have a menorah? And there's also. But I'm saying that the fact that for so long it had just always had the manger there is feels like they've lost something. But the truth is, the society is becoming increasingly pluralistic, and to really accommodate everybody. Maybe we can't have all of those displays anymore. Let let me push this just a stage further, because the other thing that I've thought a lot about in the last few years is, and again, I come to this as somebody who's been deeply skeptical of Trump from day one, but there's always a part of me that has cringed around the language of Christian nationalism when it's applied, even to this movement. Not that I think that it's wrong. Because I've heard the language for a long time. I remember the 2004 election and listen, if George W. Bush gets reelected, we're going to have a theocracy. You know, it's going to be the Handmaid's Tale. The series wasn't out yet, so nobody knew what that was. <laughs> that language was out there. You yes, know, yeah. the oppression of women was going to be there, the oppression of gay people and all of that. And George W. Bush became president. And we didn't have a theocracy, right? When I think about Christians who are potentially your audience, who are saying, do I really want to watch this thing and get kicked in the teeth more? They're not even necessarily thinking about the Trump thing. They're thinking about... I remember that election. I remember being told George W. Bush was an authoritarian. Is it warranted to have a broader conversation about pluralism to say, listen, maybe we need to revisit and say, hey, turns out Mitt Romney wasn't such a bad guy, right? Campaign against him all you want and campaign against his policies all you want. Same with George W. Bush. But the difference between Mitt Romney and George W. Bush and Donald Trump is Mitt Romney and George W. Bush never said, this is what I'm going to do. People would impute that based on what they thought they would do. But Donald Trump is actually saying he's going to do it. He's <laughs> no, actually I, saying it. A hundred percent. So, I mean, 100%. you know, you want to take him at his word or, you know. A hundred percent. And I think that's what I'm getting at is when we've spent a couple of decades going, man, the sky is falling and the, the theocrats yeah, are coming. Yeah. Then when the guy shows up and goes, hey, the theocrats are here, yeah. a lot of Christians are going, ah, I've heard this before. I don't know if I'm that worried about it anymore. There are some theocrats that are in the mix, and that's maybe confusing the discussion. But I think what you're really pointing to is what the mainstream conversation has gotten wrong about this space for a long time. They've seen it as religious extremism. It's not religious extremism. That's the point. It's political extremism. It was a misread. George W. Bush was not a religious extremist. His following was not. That wasn't what it was about. Same with Romney. Yeah, the, the mistaking of the political fervor because it's dressed in the language is what creates that confusion. But it's definitely, I think it, that's why, I think that speaks to what you're saying. Christians be like, I've been told that I'm pushing theocracy. I've been told that for 40 years and I have no interest in theocracy. What surprised you as you made the film? What surprised me was the breadth of Christian thinkers who talked openly about this. We come at it as, you know, as he says, a journalist and coming at it from a, hopefully, perspective that doesn't weigh one side or the other. And we were told, these are the people you need to talk to. That was a surprise to hear. And they've taken some heat for this. They've taken some heat. 
Yeah. But what's surprising to me, I mean, the, the first was the revelation that this thing that I saw through a secular lens as being dangerous to democracy, the way it's tearing apart the church. That was a big surprise. But then also, you know, the size and the scale of it. You know, one of the things the film attempts to do is to really show the size and the scale of it, because we are all in media bubbles. And I was aware of the moral majority and the rise of the Christian right as a political force in the 80s era. That's not what we're talking about. This thing is supercharged. It's huge. It's tens of millions of people at this point. And incredibly well-funded. I was going to ask as well, I mean, was there anything that surprised you in, an, in a good way? Because I think part of what's tragic about this is that evangelicals are, they're mobilized people. This yeah. is what they do. And there are aspects of evangelical history that are negative, and you get into some of these things in the film, but there are things like just 20 years ago, like the whole AIDS relief thing that happened with George W. Bush and Bono coming together, and, and really, Bono yeah, says this yeah. as well, like it was evangelicals yeah. who said, yeah. Yeah. this thing has to happen. It's a rough look at the state of affairs now, but there's a very positive message at the end of the film, delivered by Reverend Barber, where he talks about if we can get back to those real teachings of Jesus, what a great country this will be and what a great world we'll have. But we have to get back to that and not go off in this other direction. This is gonna sound ridiculous, but I would say the Christian message is what surprised me. I honestly, I think that I too had begun to conflate the political deliverables of this movement with the faith. And so part of the work of digging into this was to really examine what the faith says, really look at what Christian teaching has been, really look at its impact on the world. And also for myself, because I've been asking this about all of these different events, is this Christian? In what way is this Christian? And what I found just in the way this project has affected me as a person is that I ask that of myself now too. When there's some vitriol coming at you on Twitter or something like that, and I'm thinking how to respond. <laughs> I ask myself, you know, if I'm being compassionate enough, am I, is turn the other cheek right. the best idea right do? now? What would Jesus <laughs> do? I do, I ask myself that, uh, and I ask myself, am I being loving towards my enemies? Can I find compassion for this person who's coming at me? And you have to be, because at a certain point, if this Christian nationalist movement, which is basically a political movement, is subsides and people start reconnecting with Christian ideas, you want to feel forgiving. Let me ask this, just because you've brought up violence a couple of times, kind of related to that. It's 2024, we're a few days away from the first caucuses. How concerned are both of you about, about violence this year? Look what happened just today. The judge in New York who's going to be ruling on the civil case against Trump there was a death threat, a bomb threat to him. The elevated threats of violence are way up. And we saw what could happen. Mm -hmm. We know when somebody who has the charisma and the power and the force of Trump can marshal a lot of people. Let's see what happens. If he wins, there's no violence. Yeah. If he loses or if something happens where he gets convicted of one of the crimes he's been indicted for, you may see some violence. I'm not convinced there's no violence if he wins. I mean, I think it's one of those things really? where as a society, when you pop the cork on that, I don't know that it goes back. But I think you're right that the question isn't if there's gonna be political violence. Political violence is here. It's here as a baseline in America right now. It's terrible to think of it that way, but it's here. I 
definitely fear that there's going to be a lot of it in the 2024 cycle. I think that it's here in some ways that you can't even imagine. It's very good that we don't cover the manifesto of every mass shooter anymore because we're trying to not publicize them. But if you do look, there usually is a manifesto, and not always, but quite often it's filled with the same exact rhetoric that's coming yeah. from the Christian nationalist movement. A great uh, column that David French wrote on this titled The Seeds of Political Violence Are Being Sown in Church. If you're telling people that their faith is under attack and that they need to fight to defend it, and that's coming from people who seem like legitimate authorities on that faith, I think you can take for granted that it's going to happen. That's a chilling thought. My line on that for years with this movement has been that everybody wants to be a martyr, but nobody's willing to die for their faith anymore. Mm. And so it's you take on all the language of the persecution and they're after us and all of it, but you swap out the fact that persecution, suffering, exile, those are the spiritual themes of the whole Bible, yeah. the New Testament and the Old Testament. So people take on this, we're suffering and we're persecuted, so you know, let's go storm the Capitol. It's yeah. just a couple blocks yeah. away here. Yeah, like, yeah. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Last thing before we go, Tell me, what's the primary thing you hope people take away from this film who come to see it? I hope they take away the teachings of Jesus, the real teachings of Jesus. That's what I hope they take away. I just want people to reconnect with what I see as the real values on the two parallel tracks that the film looks at, of what the true values of American democracy are and what the true values of Christianity are, because I think that they work in concert. And the idea that there is friction or tension between those two is not true. And the U.S. doesn't need to be a Christian nation for those things to work. That the U.S. is inherently pluralistic and that religious liberty is really America's gift to the world. Thank you both so much for being here with us. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Good luck with the film. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.